Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. It's Sunday Sessions, 16th of August, 2020. Now, thank you for joining me for another Sunday Sessions. As some of you may well know, this is our weekly time of exploring nature-based folklore and connecting this to your favorite tree or garden sanctuary. Uh, and the three pillars of these Sunday sessions are explore nature-centered folklore, and we're certainly going to be doing that today. Personally apply that folklore mindfully outside. Sorry, I'm not outside today. One moment is sunny, next moment is about to be drizzling, so I wasn't going to take the gear outside. And do that within your favorite tree or garden sanctuary. And the third pillar is express your visions through your writing, your arts, your craft, performance, problem solving, and whatever your job is, your vocation. Now, today's uh, session theme is discovering Ashlings and the Green Man. So be comfortable. I hope you've got uh, water or tea or water and a snack, popcorn. Uh, this is going to be actually one of the long ones, so I hope you'll enjoy it. Um, I thought about splitting it up, but no, I think both subjects, the Ashling and the Green Man, they're so well knitted together. Now, this is uh, very fringe folklore, and so it's not direct from ancient tales, but from the imaginative interpretations of what a lot of people call uh, the Celtic Revival, which is been happening probably during the last 300 years, roughly. But even so, all of this Celtic revival stuff was interpreted from fragments of ancient lore. So I'm going to present some of those fragments as well, too. So uh, a romantic uh, interpretation uh, of this is perhaps the Adam, Eve, and the Apple story. And uh, in the ancient Bibles, they never actually mention an apple. Uh, what uh, seemed to happen is these the Renaissance, the 17th century Renaissance sculptures, they were inspired by the Greek uh, myths of the um, Hes Hesper well, tongue-tied Hesperides and their garden of uh, sacred apples, and there they are as well. So go through uh, these tales um, uh, this afternoon. Please uh, ask your questions, share your ideas and your comments. And uh, let's see. Oh, and see, please tell me where you're actually viewing from. Uh, that'd be lovely. I see there's a few comments here. Uh, Kimberly, lovely to see you again. Uh, hello, hello, Kimberly. <laughs> and we got Sandra Elizabeth Medium. Hello again. Great to see you. And just getting the uh, camera in. And Donna Johnson, lovely regular as well. Good to see you as well. And Shell, we've. We've really got the team in today, haven't we? So thanks very much uh, for uh, your support uh, and uh, enjoyment of this. It's always a thrill uh, to see you here. Uh, so to uh, continue uh, with this, and when Sunday sessions are broadcast outside, it's, it's usually, as you've noticed, it's the center of the tree labyrinth garden here. And the origin of the tree labyrinth garden is of the word we know as labyrinth. And when visitors come here, uh, 
I, I explain a bit more about this because people think of labyrinths. They think of the, the Manon story of Theseus, uh, Adriani, the daughter of King Minos, and the underground labyrinth of Gnosis in Crete, where the half bull and half man Minotaur lived. And there, there we have uh, there's Theseus creeping up on him. Um, but the actual word of uh, labyrinth uh, comes from... Now, I've got something in here for you uh, uh, that should... It comes from the word of labyrinth inthos. Uh, that's what the word labyrinth comes from. And it isn't... Uh, a labyrinth inthos isn't the creation of circles. It actually is a kind of a double-edged axe. And it's said that one side is dark, one side is light. And in some of the Minoan tradition, uh, there is two axes. And in Crete, museums have various ones. There's a golden, silver one here. And there's a lovely kind of display there uh, of a sort of minotaur head. And uh, if you can see above that, there we have a labyrinth as well. And the double-sided labyrinth, light and dark, or two of them held in the two hands, was actually curated by a queen, a princess, or a high, uh, someone, a high-ranking woman in the Minoan community. And it was said that when she read a labyrinth, all people were commanded to pay attention because uh, something was coming to her through the goddess or the woman of the earth uh, that people had to pay attention to. Now, the paths here uh, in the Karakori uh, Tree Labyrinth Garden, they, they kind of take on, I really didn't realize at the time that I was building this, but they actually take on, if you can actually see that in the picture, they take on the shape of the labyrinth. You can see the shaft in the middle, and you can see like the two sides of the axe there. Um, and before visitors, uh, when they come here, before they actually enter into this tree labyrinth, as you see, this was when, this was 12 years ago, I think now, uh, before the trees, it's, it's now a little woodland, and I'm going to be showing a few pictures of that a bit later on. But before people enter into this, I challenge them to leave behind their familiarity with the language that I'm speaking to you with and what you may read. As you see, it's a, it's a kind of connection of symbols, all chained together into words, sentences, text, and story. It's all very uh, linear. How about being like the animals and leave that behind? So the challenge there is to connect with nature through nature's own language so we can interpret our senses of sight, smell, touch, listening, and taste. And so a memory is not trying to recall a bunch of calibrated words. You know, when you're revising for exams, you're trying to remember quotes and so forth. I was hopeless at that. I used to just bring up pictures in my mind, and that, that got me through everything. So the challenge is, is enjoy bathing in the synthesis of his senses, and that's what I encourage people to do when they come into the tree labyrinth, into any of the labyrinths in the labyrinth garden here. I find it hard to apply words to describe that experience, but to me, when you do that, when you actually rely on your senses and the visions from your senses, it's a lovely experience of like getting into a bath. You just let go, and the chattering mind vanishes. Uh, your chattering mind is replaced by images that 
seem to spontaneously form into our mind's eye, which um, is more like the third eye that people seem to, and there's my imagery of uh, being in the third eye, that people seem to talk about. And holding on to that imagery is what happens there. I think it probably forms into something that you're familiar with and something uh, that you can trust. Uh, it's probably going to show you something. Uh, the imagery, it could be an image from your religion or faith, uh, a guardian angel, uh, a spirit guide, animal totem, bird totem, a she or fey image, or even the return of an invisible guide and friend that, uh, used to, that used to guide you in childhood. A uh, wonderful experience. So this approach to sensory communication and returning, uh, you know, if we have this in imagery from our senses and we return back to our so I, what I call calibrated language, we can serve remarkable new clarity and wisdom in our lives. A lot of visionary inventors, that's how they solve problems. Uh, and then, you know, a lot of the scientists, the foundation scientists, they're creative. They've, they've done what they do uh, through their imagination. And the inner response often and I find this in the tree labyrinth theories. Wow, I get it now. And that's that's quite common here. And is 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 quite a pride. Always, oh, this is what the tree labyrinth does when people are here. So when we return from vision to our familiar language, I encourage people to indulge in an expression that we call poetry. I think our expression. You know, you may not be poets. This is my choice. This is what I enjoy. I express myself through poetry uh, and sort of rambling writing, doodling writing a lot of the time. With other people, they may express this much better. And, and I love it when they do through drawings and paintings and dance movements or playing some music. But uh, for this session, because the Ashlings is connected to poetry, so is Green Man in a way, I'm going to be sticking to poetry uh, through this uh, because uh, poetry really it can be spontaneous uh it can be free we can drop all cares of abiding to grammar structure spelling and punctuation it's a free language and uh, i love that because when i was at school uh i uh we uh, high school grammar school we had two exams in english and all the way through and they had o levels then and uh, there was English literature and English language. And we had pre-exams leading up to that. And every year, I'd always get the top grade in the English literature. Again, with literature, you work on these visions and you interpret the visions. When it came to the English, English grammar, I always got the bottom grade. Bottom grade was nine. Top grade was one. It wasn't ABC. It was one to nine. <laughs> Excuse me. And I took that uh, exam three times and I got nine, <laughs> all three times. Yeah, the literature I soared away with and then of course through my life. What I've been doing, I've been writing and kind of earning my crust quite a bit from writing and the side things I've done from that. So uh, don't be discouraged from that. I, I, I did go to college, university and where I did food science. 
And the dean there, when I told him this story, he laughed and said, uh, well, it took me uh, three goes to get my maths A level. And if you do a science degree, you've got to get a high level of maths passed before you can even get onto that. So that was quite funny. Anyway, back to the poetry. Our first uh, draft, uh, I say, is encourage it to be as it is. Let the words just ooze out. Be as naked and free as possible. Make your initial first draft a wordy doodle. It can always be crafted a bit later to be something else. So now after this uh, winding uh, into this session of Ashlings and the Green Man and introducing the idea of the imagery and poetry, let's bring the Ashlings onto the stage. Uh, before I do, let's see how, if you've got any more to say there. Uh, Don, I love the angel. <laughs> Thank you, Donna. Yes, uh, I think we're going to have a lot of fantasy imagery coming up today. Uh, and Sandra uh, loves reading. Yes, reading, I, I bring this up in other Sunday sessions. Uh, if that's your chosen way of bringing the imagination, I think that's the lovely thing in the reading, when you actually get visions from it and you can live with those visions. You're not memorizing from the book. You're not sticking to the book. You're still allowing your senses uh, to guide you. And uh, the reading to me is a lovely sort of verification and a reference to that. So, Ashlings, let, let me get some uh, bit of an Ashling picture going up. Uh, I gave you a first one. Let's try that one. Okay. Uh, now, let's get into uh, I got some banners here of uh, an Ashling. It's a dream vision poem. Now, a huge amount of uh, folklore and so-called Celtic mythology uh, that we share today seems to have come from the uh, 17th century uh, Renaissance years and the Celtic romance of the 18th century. And there's been, uh, and that was quite consistent, and groups were getting together to relive this romanticism and going off on rambles and adventures. Then there was an acceleration during, if anybody remembers, the guru years of the early 70s. I think the Beatles and the, uh, oh, and the meditation guru set that up. Everybody thought, oh, that's great. I think I'll be a guru. So this stuff of the Celtic mythology ended up getting into a bit of Eastern guruism. And so there was an acceleration there through the 70s and the 80s. And then soon as the social media came along, especially Facebook over the last 12 years, there's been a real exponential revival on what is this uh, Celtic mythology? What is this Celtic uh, folklore? But And really anything that's pre that 17th century Renaissance is re actually regarded too old to be traditional. Uh, try it sometime. Um, I've done this, uh, taken a song, a tune, or a story that's older than the Renaissance 17th century and taken it to a traditional, um, traditional purist, I'm sure you've met the kind, and they've said back to me, oh, that's too old to be traditional. Try that sometime. Uh, it's quite uh, something. Now, uh, for Ashlings, it's very important uh, to go to the founder of the genre 
and let's get his name up, is, uh, well, that's, that's his name. Who can pronounce it? Uh, as far as I know, it's, it's something like Egan Rahli. Uh, but for, and let's bring him up. Uh, this is at the head of one of his books. There's his name there. And uh, to make this a bit simple, uh, I'm going to anglicize it a bit. It's Egan O'Reilly or Egan O'Reilly. Uh, let's go with that one. And uh, with Egan, he's regarded the man who uh, who really started the Ashling poem genre. Uh, the workings of this genre tradition starts with a poet meeting a beautiful woman, a, 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 a fairy woman, a she, a goddess, that type of woman. And she is met while in a trance, meditation, contemplation, or asleep. And of course, Egan was a man. So I'm starting on the man in the sort of vision of a woman uh, at the moment. Women, you're going to have your turn with a green man a bit later on. But uh, this woman is symbolized as a, a bounty of nature combined with uh, an ultimate connection to love. And it's said that Egan explained this as a reflection and connection of love and beauty. The most a human person, especially a man, into being a poet. And when visitors, uh, there we go. There, uh, there's, uh, there's. Have anybody seen the Song of Kells? Because you have Ashling there, and there's the lad there. Uh, he's, he's there entranced by the vision of the Ashling there out in the woods, and she has a cat. <laughs> uh, lovely thing on that. And um, so when people, visitors, they enter into the tree labyrinth here, the Labros, Labros Inthos paths, to me, it's like a space of the Ashling that's offered to all people. A lot of people express a, f a feminine energy within this. They describe the visions that come to them, and some of them actually go away, and they do create uh, poems. And though, as I was saying, women may relate more to the spirit of the grand man that I'm going to actually uh, bring up a bit later. I'm going to explain that. So let's see how you're looking at this so far. Pagaban, very good. I'm going to have to go back on that one. <laughs> very good. Uh, Secret of Kells, yes, it, Janet. You recognize it, Donna. Donna's recognized that. Hello, Margaret. If you've missed uh, the uh, the weeks past, don't worry. They're archived. I'm not up fully on doing the um, Karakori Gardens uh, website uh, video archive. It's, we got showers this week, so I'm going to have time to catch up and stuff like that. But all these live videos they're there they're archived immediately on youtube and facebook and now on periscope uh, which goes through twitter and then they will be on the website as well so you're not going to lose them if you do just message me there is an archive and you certainly catch up or revise uh, at your leisure and, and so we're making a collection here and there's uh, there's egan still got his name up there uh, so lovely, thank you all for being here as it is. Uh, there, let's see. Um, 
got the comments. I'm that's it. We'll get rid of him now. Uh, right, buttons, buttons. I still am not my interlude of the buttons, so let's move on here. Unfortunately, Egan was overwhelmed with the obsession passion. He was very obsessive about this Ashling experience, this perfect, beautiful woman. And it's as if he believed that the Ashling's perfection and beauty of softness and love makes all expression of human language, poetry and song totally inadequate. And that was, that's usually frustration. And it's very frustrating. And that's certainly something I think we all have when we hang on to things. And we tend to have expectations, don't we? And we want that to repeat. I think when we're very young, we do this in our young romances. But Fregan, these, though he was a writer and a poet, he could never express the purity and perfection that he would see of this Ashling that came to him in his, in his dreams and at night. And Egan O'Reilly, he lived during a, he certainly lived during a time of cruel political and social upheaval in Ireland. It was a time when whoever the forces in government and control and rule were crushing the Irish language, they were crushing and getting rid of the Irish language, the traditions of music, song, poetry, and the stories expressed from the bardic passions. It was really driving the romance away from the people. And Egan was refusing this. He was having this nightly Ashling that was his savior for the melancholy of the day. And it, at that time, it was almost the death of bardic tradition during, during his time, uh, the late 17th uh, century, uh, the um, well, 18th century, I mean, and the early 19th. And it was held together by a thread of the unexpected success of this man, Turlough O'Carolan. But that's another story. I'm really going to have to do a Turlough O'Carolan Sunday session because uh, it's quite a remarkable man. I'm going to speak a little bit later, but I'm going to hold his story because he's much more than a musician, Bob. Uh, a wonderful life. But Egan's own life was reduced from... High, so, uh, he was of really high social order as a bard because the bards were an essential, they were essential people uh, of the community. They were, well, dare I say, the government. They were the ones that guided. They guided more than the priests. They were the absolute guides for the people. They gave them a sense of purpose, sense of living, and connected them to the seasons they were in and for success of the seasons they were in. But it, these people, because of the new people in power and suppressing the bards, suppressing this, the, um, the Breton laws and the councils and uh, the way that people negotiated with each other, it, it was now a, an order. It was a kind of diluted order, sterile order, and this was suppressing the country. And poor Egan, his own life, he was reduced down to being a destitute pauper. But it seems the miracle of Egan overcoming his demoralizing life was the 
sweet, calming, and inspiring imagery of a beautiful young woman who sang and played harp for him. Unfortunately, I couldn't find a beautiful woman singularly with the harp. I'm sure they're out there. So enjoy these two women here. And uh, her songs and music morphed into beautiful prophetic images. There you go, a little bit of the secret of Kells there. And uh, her voice, her harp music, and herself, unfortunately, as the night faded away, she faded away as well. And Egan, he fell obsessed. He was obsessed. Uh, he was so deeply in love with this woman of the night. And through the day, he refused to eat or take part in activities of the daylight day. He believed he could only live for the night when his beautiful dream maiden, and here is three dream maidens. He was getting greedy. Uh, <laughs> and they were returned to him at night. But sadly, by ignoring the day and living by the dreams at night, this eventually killed him. But Egan's poetry of uh, his essential dream visions, did, as I showed his name on a the book. They were collected. Uh, they were expressed. Uh, they're in the old Irish language, the old Gaelic, the old Gaelic, of course. But the question I put to you is, how could you experience dream visions, the Ashling uh, being a poetry of these dream visions, and not be have your life dragged down in that way, but be energized rather than let this vision fade you away because that's where you want to be. And I mentioned earlier the revival of the traditions these romantic renaissance and romantic traditions were repackaged from the fragments of ancient traditions and there's an older tradition uh, that is called blunt uh, it's imbas forestnay and i'm going to see if i can get the spelling up for you for that one uh, of the dream vision poem there's, there we go um i need to get the c there we go there we go the I think it's up for you there. That's right. The Inbas Forosnay. Bluntly, I describe this as bardic clairvoyance. And uh, there's a bit of bard expressing a bit of clairvoyance there. And uh, to me, the folklore of the Inbas Forosnay is about letting ourselves loose from the academia chains of language and reconnecting with that sensory language that life and nature speaks to each other with. And I personally believe this is also our, it's our wellspring of prophecy too. And when, first, when we have that imbas, it means inspiration. It means the prophetic, sacred, prophetic, poetic inspiration that we have uh, when we share our poetry. We accept that this imbas is within nature. It's within a nature-driven space. I'm sorry I'm not doing this out in the uh, tree labyrinth because uh, the weather could be a bit dodgy. Anyway, imagine yourself in a nature-driven space of nature spirits. And when we're in that space, we may call that the, the she or the fae. And we reach 
a center in ourselves. When we find that there's this clarity of the imbas within ourselves, that we are in connected to the nature spirits, somehow we feel that we're in the center of this. And this is, and when we feel center and flow, this is when we enter the second part of that phrase, the frosne, the the illumination. There we go, a bit of illumination there. And it seems some ancient practitioners, they believe that the state of Imbas Vrosne could not be achieved without some kind of sensory deprivation or could not be achieved without the consumption of substances that induce a dreamlike state. Uh, some people may come across this when you approach people that call themselves shamans. They, they believe in inducing the dream state through substances, through various mushrooms and various plants, uh, whatever. But from my own experience from people visiting here using our tree labyrinth, this none of this is essential. Uh, you don't need to deprive yourself. You don't need to go into a penance. And you don't need, uh, in my mind, you don't need to intoxicate yourself. I believe sensory amplification. That's what we aim for. Sensory amplification rather than deprivation. And so I hope that my guiding introduction before people enter into this uh, tree labyrinth, uh, this tree labyrinth garden, it does bridge a sensory connection uh, to yourself in some way. I believe it needs personal trust for this to happen. And you actually are in a peaceful, natural space. I feel that that trust is a natural thing. Suddenly, people feel that here, ah, I feel safe in here. And when you feel safe, the images are not a fear. The images are of beauty, like Egan and his beautiful woman. It doesn't have to be the image of a beautiful woman or a beautiful man. It's that image of the beauty of life. And I believe that's the amplification. And if we allow trust and the amplification to happen, this is something I feel that uh, Egan failed to do. And so what we do, there's a third thing then that we embrace the light, we embrace the day, and we embrace this with a new prophecy of our present uh, that is divine, it's unconditional. And to me, that is unity with the Ashling uh, rather than carrying an obsession. Perhaps Imbas from Frosne should expand. Let's call it another one i've got another phrase here if i can bring it up uh let's try this one the imbas frosnes surely excuse my pronunciation i'm really tongue-tied today imbas frosnes surely inspiration illumination and connecting to light sadly agan uh, uh Ashling tradition and genre was attempted by several poets and it's a genre that didn't really last all that long, maybe 30 to 50 years after Egan started the genre going, other poets 
they were having visions and suddenly they felt pulled to write about these tashrams because they were also the it came out of people that were having these difficult melancholy days through the suppression but unfortunately after about 50 years the whole image of the ashling morphed from the beautiful woman into more of a satirical image and so it was a it was a joke then the joke started coming out in comedy and in drama and, and in pantomime type of things there's a woman uh, to become perfect she has to become obsessed with trying to achieve and preserve looks and perfect manners and has to sustain those uh, tries to sustain herself as a perfect beautiful woman and even today when women uh, do this and they seem to fuss about their looks someone may say well <laughs> aren't you being the ashling today so uh, what about before the days of of Egan Horelli and his enchanting Ashling, there were uh, known uh, there were she women, fey women known. Uh, I'm going to bring the phrase up here as a spearman, or if I had a Cockney London Cockney accent, it'd come out something like spearman, and uh, you'll understand why when you actually see. There it is. There's the spelling of it. Uh, so spearman. Uh, Spervan, 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 a loving spell enchantment woman. And in that old tradition, she was not always young and perfectly beautiful, but could be an old hag with an infectious uh, sparkle uh, in of wisdom in her eyes, like this woman here. Um, or this one even, there you go. Uh, they, <laughs> there she is. Ashbevan was a she-woman born with the melancholy state of the Irish people, but she also inspired them with joy from their dreaming due to awakening them with prophecies of what to feel, prophecies of what to feel and what to do to bring more love and more peace uh, into their lives. And I briefly referred to, referred to Terrell O'Carolan, so I'm going to come back to him a little bit more here. He was a, um, and let's bring his spelling up as well. That might be handy for you. And uh, he's running away from me. There we go, uh, Terrell O'Carolan. He has various names all over the place. And, uh, well, he, let's get back to him. Right. Well, he was a blind Harper Bard, and for him being blind, as it is with a lot of obviously poor blind people, and I've worked with blind people, they spend all day and all night in the dark. And I, I tend to wonder how many blind people, and especially if they've got into music and they're bards, how many of them walk around and live with an Ashling, live with some kind of spearman. In addition, so with uh, Turlough, in addition to being a famous composer and performer in the great Lord Houses, he was fantastic. He actually took some of the Irish tradition, and it was the first time that people in these Anglo-Irish houses, big country houses of the lairds, of the landlords, he would actually bring their language. He would bring the harp traditions. 
he would bring all these traditions that their their people, I suppose you would say, had been suppressing, and and actually demonstrated them to them, and it actually became a fashion. Maybe that was the start of the romanticism when these people thought maybe Turlow actually started this romanticism. I, I'm not sure, but it was amazing that something they were suppressing was something that was enchanting their lives. Maybe the Spirvin was entering into their spirit as well. So in addition to being a famous composer and performer in these Lord's houses, Turlow, uh, he, he got all around Europe with this, and he did earn, in those days, what would have been vast sums of money, actually money in the pocket. Very few people actually had money in their pocket in those days. And he was very generous with it. And uh, he would, what time he had, he would actually visit the peasant cottages and within these rural cottages, he would donate a little to them. But his main purpose of coming back to the cottages was to uplift the people, let them see their own Spiven spirit and let that lift them. Anyway, I'm going to come back. Uh, it's a lovely story with Turlo or Carolyn, and I'm going to bring it back uh, to another Sunday session one day. So returning to the Ashley story, the you got the beautiful woman that entered into the dreams of Egan or Rahali. This is of a woman spirit guide guiding a human man. And I'm not, I haven't even touched on the related tradition of where men used to actually gather sticks of rawn and they would burn them. Uh, and they would collect together in a council and they would burn them uh, to call upon the Ashlings, call upon the spear of an, call upon the spirits of the women that will keep them calm, keep them focused because they're in council, because of tension, because of trading, maybe a, to settle disputes. And the presence is believed that the Spearman prevents the different clans in council going to war. But I'm gonna move on to turning this around. This has been the sort of male spirit guides in the form of some woman's spirit. So I'm gonna actually now move on to the uh, for your women for the green man and let's update see what's happening oh kith <laughs> the green man himself sorry kith i don't have a picture of you for the next section you've come in you've arrived at the right time man kith here i wish i had the photograph up I, I couldn't find him kith is actually a green man now kith you're going to find this fascinating i might come up with some stuff that you might not even know or you might even disagree with so fire your comments about this and and debate this. Um, anyway, I yeah, I wish I had a picture. I'm going to have to put one in the comments of Kith, who tends to dress up wonderfully as a green man. Anyway, lovely uh, that you're here, and I hope all's well there in Wales. Uh, so let's move on uh, with this, and let's get greening. Now, the green man may seem to be a very ancient tradition. A lot of people have said to me, well, what is the green man? So a lot of people are not familiar with the green man anyway. The green man as a term is actually quite modern. And for this, we go back to 1880 uh, to this woman. And that, that's Lady Raglan, uh, otherwise uh, Julia Somerset. And, and though she's Julia Somerset, she actually lived in Gloucestershire. And she wrote an article that became 
quite famous. It became very famous, in fact. It was the only article she wrote that did become famous. Uh, so Julia was not really a writer. Uh, she juggled, what she did with this famous article, she, dug, juggled, she juggled her imagination of a maid trickster called Jack in the Green. And I'm going to show a, pic, a sort of a Jack in the Green picture in a minute. And she mixed the Jack in the Green with quite common medieval gargles, uh, gargoyles that are carved into walls. There's one, and pillars. And this was done in, in the early and late medieval monastic abbeys. And you may have seen them around the UK, certainly around Scotland. I worked on some in Scotland and in Ireland. And uh, as you can see there, these are images of gargoyles of carvings with men with uh, branches uh, of leaves in their hair. Some have them growing out of their face and ears. Some have branches growing out of their mouths. And now Jackie in the Green is also an older tradition, and this is performed out. Uh, there's some sort of green men there, but there, that big tall thing, he's, he's Jack in the Green and uh, exists uh, around the UK much more. I'm not sure if... Ireland celebrates Jack in the Green. There might be a bit of it down in Waterford and Wexford. I'm not sure. But he's suddenly described as a symbol of spring, of May fertility and a, a new cycle, a rebirth and growth. And there's a sculpture of the Jack in the Green there. Now, Jack's tradition goes a bit stronger than that, though. He was of the Hawthorne, and I haven't got Hawthorne pictures. So I was going to put some up. But he... With his tradition, the scent of the white hawthorn was what he would use because he believed, well, he knew from experience that the white hawthorn blossom aroused lust in the wombs of women. And as Jack is then said to enchant and lure women to his bed of hawthorn flowers in the wood. And I've covered this on past Sunday sessions in greater detail. And from that uh, copulation and conception, the woman is said to give birth to a fairy person born as a human. And I couldn't find any uh, fairy people, so I, excuse the indulgence of me, <laughs> including myself as a picture for that. Now, Jack in the Green is really an image of a story and tradition of the wild hunt. Uh, this is a way that people of the past were able to spread the genes of a village wider. Today, we take it for granted we go traveling to the shops, and as we go through shops, we pass through villages, and uh, we pass through a lot of people, and it's nothing to actually meet people from other villages and other counties, other countries, but it wasn't that long ago when people were confined to their villages, and you can imagine if they intimated in the villages, family trees just went straight up, and that would have been a problem for the continuation of the human race, the way that was being suppressed together. So use your own imagination to see whether uh, to think of how the Jack in the Green tradition with uh, the mating went on with people in other areas. So I'm going to move on. I'm going to go back to the the gargoyle men here. Um, they are around Ireland and nearby in Boyle Abbey, there's actually one that's hidden. And it's amazing, even Boyle Abbey guides, I have to, they challenge me over it. But see what you think yourself. I've got a couple of pictures here. Here's the green man that's hidden in Boyle Abbey. It's quite hidden. It's not where uh, people would obviously go. And 
then I, if you go in Boyle Abbey, you see that you look one side, there's a sculpture. You look the other pillar, the other side, and it's identical sculpture. So there we go. In this situation, there's a green man. Here's the sculpture on the pillar, the other side. Can you see this is definitely the difference? There's definitely a nose and there's definitely a green man there and uh, the branches. I hope you can see that there. It is different. So uh, when I was, um, I was a medieval relics mason myself for a while. This was on Iona. And I was told by my very senior foreman tales of how the masons uh, who were built, who built the monastic properties in the, especially in the early medieval time, they were a very different culture to the monastic people. And when I've spoken to this two people in greater depth than will be to you just now, they said, oh, you, you uh, masons, you must have been pagan. But it's not that simple to define those people because in those days, the masons of those days, and also the, the, uh, the monks and whoever, uh, and the Abbotsford people uh, in the monasteries, both those groups of people, I don't think that they had any idea what a pagan was. I don't think it probably, I bet they didn't even have a word for it. Might have been, they might have had the peasant word. Uh, the Romans, I think, came up with pagan. I'm not sure, but in their own day-to-day -day life, it's not the division, it's not something they would think of in such simple terms. And it said that these uh, masons would carve these images and gargoyles of their culture to explain that they were here, to explain the purpose of their own culture. I was told that these tree men, that they carved like the ones that I showed subtly in the Boyle Abbey, they were a kind of warning to the monks of abbot and abbots because there was a conflict. The monks and abbots, they wanted their monasteries. They wanted their churches. They wanted their prayer rooms. But the Masons themselves, they were, they were cautious. One of the things with the Masons, for instance, is they refused to build. They liked building round buildings, but these medieval abbots they wanted sort of rectangular buildings and the one thing the masons refused to do is actually build walls that were at 90 degrees because they were very much in uh, ingrained in them was way back probably babylonian minoan persian whatever came through it was something that was still ingrained in their psyche that you don't have anything at 90 degrees because all that does is bring challenges if you're into astrology, you'll understand what I mean. So these masons refused to make corners of walls at 90 degrees. They would make sure they were five to 10 degrees off. So they would be 100 degrees or they would be 80 degrees. And when abbots were questioned about this, the abbots said, oh, this was done by our instruction because it was to demonstrate that us humans are not perfect. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I was told that these, um, as to say, these uh, green, these gargoyles, they were a warning to the monks and abbots. And it was a warning because already the, to build these buildings, and of course the masons were there doing this, and they had to cut and, and get stone, but there was still a warning because to build these places, there was removal of trees and plants. And this would have, by the moving of trees and plants, this would move the residency of birds, 
and animals in order to create an order construction of the abbey, the building, and the walls. So all the stuff of nature had to be cleared in order to build this grand place that's supposed to be sacred, removing a natural sacred place for a human-built sacred place. Uh, so I was told that the warning of the gargoyles was, be careful where you go with this, and do not let your buildings and faith detach you from the trees, plants, creatures, and all the things that the spirit of nature flows through. And so with the Julius Somerset Lady Raglan's Green Man article, uh, her only known article, she imagined these stone gargoyles coming alive and becoming the Jack the Green mischief of May and Belsony. She imagined them just leaping down from the Abbey and old ancient church walls and actually being alive and being this green man that was the Jack in the Green. So she was merging uh, the two together. Uh, and her article, it went viral, and it, it kept appearing in folklore journals from 1880 and went on for about five years. And the gargoyle figures were then known, and the nickname grew as the Green Man, and all these traditional traditions like Jack in the Green, and, uh, and I'm going to come to another one in Ireland. They started being related to as the Green Man, and so this whole romance of the Green Man tradition developed, taking the fragments of similar characters, similar folklore from different parts of the country and bringing it together, and we had uh, the Green Man. But what many of, of us imagine as a Green Man, it does go way back in human history, in different guises, and they all celebrate the same male mating fertile spirit in nature. Now, one of those characters, and you might find this one is a surprise, is Robin Hood. And there's a version of Robin Hood. Anybody can recognize who that Robin Hood is? Put it in the comments if you recognize who that is. Anyway, that's Robin Hood's always held a, a lifetime fascination to me. And uh, and I've I've always looked back, you know, who is this Robin Hood character? And you can come up with all sorts of answers around this. Uh, around the world, uh, there are snakes, dragons, uh, serpents, and they're all symbols, and we've covered this in the Sunday sessions, they're all symbols of the flow of nature, and they're said to create the winding furrows in the earth where the waters and rivers flow. And folklore around the world has also told that when the earth, animals, and people are abused by humans, a snake will appear amongst them and a snake will be wearing a hood to look like a person. I wish I could, I did have some pictures of this. Uh, it's certainly in the Hindu religion and certainly in some of the Middle Eastern, this is believed. And so the snake appears amongst the people wearing a hood and then bites the abusers and fills them in venom or sometimes casts fire. Now, Robin, the name Robin, one of the uh, theories is that his name, it actually might come from Ireland and comes from the name Rory. And this is a word that describes red and fiery, the red fiery one wearing the hood. And there he is with a hood meeting a very voluptuous Maid Marian, a very old picture there. And have you noticed that uh, most of the Robin Hoods that have come from the film industry they don't uh, have hoods. They, 
they have like this character with these sort of silly hat with a big long feather. That seems to have become the Robin Hood tradition. So where's the hood? Robin Hood, where's the hood? Instead of the open neck shirt. Anyway, he has a hood here and the one wearing, uh, and this, here's another one uh, where he's uh, wearing uh, the hood. And another possible origin of the Robin name is from the ancient, uh, if anybody's looked into Oberon, the king of the fairies. And the old part of his name is also describing a snake and a serpent, that the king of the fairies is actually a snake or a serpent. And there is folklore that goes from the Persian and it comes across uh, Minoan, certainly into the Greek, uh, where there, uh, especially in Greek mythology, that amongst the fairies, amongst the nymphs, is a tree with a snake. The serpent tends to be the center and almost like the king. It's the snake that is the king and the queen of the fairies, the serpent. And that's what Oberon was. And so it's wondered if the old from that going to the uh, robin, that he is the serpent, that anybody uh, that abuses, that he would appear with the hood and be lethal. And that's how the Robin Hood stories are. There's certainly people think of Robin from the rich, given to the poor. But if you think about it, why is he doing that? It's because of the abuse. And, that, and that's what comes into his name. And that's a lovely deviation, I think, of the green man's spirit, is the Robin Hood story. Uh, and the Oberon name, I'm not sure uh, if, I'm uncertain about the origin. Maybe it came over to Ireland via the Saxons during medieval times or the Normans during late medieval. But Oberon really has, also has an old tradition amongst the Norse and Germanic, uh, as well as coming across the world maybe from Persian times, uh, the old Hindus. Anyway, Robin, as we know, uh, fell in love with uh, Maid Marian. And there's an amazing coincidence uh, within abbeys there are green man gargoyles. Well, we call them green man gargoyles now at present. And there's often a Mary or Marian figure nearby. And I couldn't get, uh, get some great photos on that. But here's one uh, example of where the two of them are quite close together. And within folklore, I often comment about how a land carries the work of a goddess, such as Breed, Eriu, Onya, Gorb, Onya, uh, Boyne. And the sea has its gods. They're all male. We have McMahon, we have Neptune, we have Poseidon. Uh, and maybe others. But within the green man-related folklore, this sort of reverses. Uh, we have the serpents, Jack of the Green, John Barleycorn, Hearn Hunter, Doida, Dagda, and even legends about Cernanus. Cernanus. And the one common denominator about all these characters is they tend to meet the hags by the water, and they meet mermaids. They meet sirens, selkies. I wish I had pictures of all these. And all these water beings, these water sort of semi-goddesses, and water, seawater, fresh water, all becomes collectively known as myrrh. So has myrrh become Mary or Marian, Marianne Marian? And did was it the Robin Hood fell in love with the lady of the waters? It's quite a vision. Again, this is the Ashling vision uh, flowing through uh, when I think of the, the Robin Hood origin, because I, I don't take the story as such. Where did this come from? What's the fragments 
that were put together from this. And that's what I've come up with. It's the serpent of the nymphs of the fae. And they come out of the water anyway. And there's love with the myrrh, the connection to the myrrh uh, and the water. So uh, the one thing in um, folklore is that, uh, let's get this one up, uh, is that the man, well, man's penis often in folklore is a serpent and the woman's womb is the lake. And inside that womb, the lake, there's a fire, the fluctra, where conception happens. And the folklore often tells us of a serpent that remains in the heart of everything born. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Uh, but today it seems that the green man image has become an icon for respect for our beautiful landscapes. It's respect and gratitude for the bounty of births and harvests of nature, especially around Lunasa and the harvest that we have, both the harvest that we cultivate and the harvest that we forage that's so wild. So along with the Sheila icon, and perhaps more relevant to the womb of water underworld, they're together a unifying champion for today's environmental and population challenges. Now, before I go off the imagery and spirit of the green man, I must flow into what I, I feel is perhaps the more ancient origins of Lady, that Lady Raglan seems to have touched on. And this is the folklore of the Gankana, Ginkanak, Gankana, and Gagkana. And there's a preview picture of the, the fella there. So let's see uh, what anybody's had to say about this. Excellent presentation. Thank you, Keith. Uh, <laughs> you got it. There's a shell. She's got the, uh, she's recognized the Robin Hood. I'm glad, uh, and Donna has a lovely association uh, with the green man, and Donna definitely in love with the green man. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, so I'm going to go on here uh, and with this absolutely fascinating person that uh, I think I've tried to copy in my young years in some way. Anyway, here we go. The fairy lover, the love talker. The the gang Connor the uh, the gang Connor um, uh, is very much an Aryan Aragale Argyle of Scotland folklore, and is very much the Irish version of the Jack in the Green, uh, the fairy lover of the Hawthorn, also who said to enchant temptation and debauchery, that drives a woman into passionate frenzy by dangling the fragrance of the hawthorn blossom as it's just come out. And this is why he tends to be called a love talker. And I have heard stories that tell of the love talker arriving in dreams and the love talker waiting by a hawthorn tree for a beautiful woman to pass. And with his trickery, this enchants her with the infection, infectious arousing of lust and temptation, waving the wafting of the hawthorn blossom that lures her into joining him into a mating dance. These stories tell of these man bards of old, skilled of trickery to ensure that they have company in their bed during the nightly hours after evening bartery. 
So watch out when you meet a bard and, and the bard's trickery because that's maybe what, if they're on the road and traveling, they're luring, they're looking for lures to, the, to their bed during the nightly hours. And I suppose that's something similar to, as goes on today with the bastard days, like the rock band and maybe the boy band groupie tradition. It probably just follows on from the ancient tradition, I suppose. Then, unfortunately, then at sunrise, they're gone. And for the woman, after they're gone, it leaves a painful, it could leave a painful longing. How could such a gentle lover are so sensitive, as light, as warmth. So the gentle lover who had entered into the cold, longing darkness uh, of the woman left. And after being abandoned from such love, both women and men, and the men too, seek for a love that's sustaining. And it's not fleeting like that. And when a woman becomes aware that this is her own trapped light released within herself, her own cold embers becomes reignited. And these are the stories that sometimes accompany the light and fire stories of Breda, Bridial, Bridge, and any other light angel. It's realizing that that light, that longing of the cold embers is totally self-contained. Fire and warmth that has entered the heart earth will never leave them when they understand this and the longing is banished. So here we have the this chap here. The Aryan Gankana, 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 Fae Lover, maybe the green man, the arriver at night, the arriver in darkness with flickering lights of temptation, an invitation to debauchery, drives women into passionate frenzy. And the winds carry me like wild charging stallions, riding upon the breath of lavender's blending scent to rest upon the post of your abode, watching you dream your dreams in bed awakening carnal desires within, hot flames from flowing blood within, hot the hearth, the blood hearth in winter, every fearless touch undoing into abandonment, reveling in fearless present within the forbidden. And then the trickster Gonconic's poem, that's what that was. It's always cleverly worded and told to penetrate into the dreams of women and perhaps arouse their lust. Now, the woman could never really be with this love talker. The more that she thinks and dreams of him, the more and more distant he seems to become. But the more and more, the distant he becomes, the more she wants him, the more and more, and the yearning, the longing, the pain of that longing. And then suddenly she discovers that she is the fairy love herself. A love talker enchanted woman discovers that it is her own spirit that's driving the passion. And suddenly she has the trust in the illumination and the clarity of her purpose through this love. 
And then we're lasting enchantments and women with the green man both can discover their own sacred hearts. They can both discover that their own sacred heart is their love talker. Any bard or storyteller present is only a voice to arise the voice suppressed with any of us, suppressed due to our instinct for living as a human in our do-as-you-told culture, which a lot of us are really complaining about right now, aren't we, uh, with uh, wear your mask, stay two meters apart, and stay at home. Obviously, a lot of us agree this is good, but there's a lot of people fighting this authority uh, that we live from our daylight hours of being doing what we're told, and this suppresses the poetry and the light inside ourselves. The enchantment of the life door talker released within us, let that happen. It, it can help us to enjoy a life flowing through being understanding that our light and love inside is all embracing, is pure, is whole, and is very nourishing. And by being so, and by allowing your synthesis of senses, synthesis of love to form, your stress and all that longing, uh, it dissolves away. I believe it is the voices we share through writing, through singing, through chanting, through music, especially harps, of course, through drumming, through prayer bowls, through dance, through drawing, through painting, through sculpture, through our crafts, through our work, our engineering, if we're engineers, or in our hospitality and the service for others. We can always be the love talker, the Ashling, and the green man. We all have that charm. And to me, and I shame I don't have uh, pictures uh, for this, it's as if a dragon's fire ignites in every heart. And every dragon's tail is always umbilically connected to the heart of this one beautiful woman in the gathering fire, the same beautiful woman that resides and courts in this point where, oh, the same beautiful woman that resides, courts, and judges at the point where our two worlds meet. And that is, um, that part there is from uh, the Rowan. Um, and Lushta Rowan is part of Omer's Tale of the Trees that's taken from my bathing in the phase breath. So my wish is that uh, may the guiding spirit of the Ashling and the Green Man inspire you, connect you, and nourish you, rather than arouse lust expectations and loss and a mourning longing. Be real, love-talking poets, my friends. So what, uh, is there any new comments from you? Uh, from that, a Chandler, I've often, uh, there we go, I've often found that, and uh, here's a real poet there, uh, and she's saying, that, uh, I've lost it, aha, right, I've often found that poetry is the close, since the human tongue may come to communi communicating with the lyric and eloquent language of the trees, yeah, that's what I agree with, and, uh, Thank you for that, and we will 
we will have Chandler's poems in um, Bards from the Woods, maybe not to this week, but we had a beautiful one last week. I hope you watched that at four o'clock, and I hope there's going to be another one next week as well. Now, this is a reminder that Karakroy and... Now, uh, well, let's get... I'm losing my banners here. Uh, this is... Um, by the Karakroy Labyrinth and Garden Sessions uh, is... You can get the Sunday sessions uh, from this uh, website. And I am going... Right, there we go. And uh, and by doing the labyrinth cards, keeping up the tree labyrinth, putting on these Sunday sessions, trying to improve on the reception a bit. It's all funded by your donations, and that's the donation link here. Uh, it's highly grateful. And uh, we've got something coming up. Keep an eye on this. Uh, there's something big going to happen here. So I'm going to be fundraising pretty big. Uh, uh, but I can't say anything about it. But look out next week. You're going to make a notice about this, of how we've got an opportunity to uh, expand this. And so that's the tip jar link. And if, so if access to use of the Labyrinth Gardens also is going to be uh, your personal appearance. Uh, it's going to be to you, the sponsors, the donators, going to limit the access to the people who are supporting this. Uh, and so there's no more than eight people here at a time. And so we're going to have special events uh, for that. And through this winter, for those that are donating and subscribing, I'm going all these Sunday session content. I'm having to slow myself down. This is a very long one. But I'm going to develop a self-service course to thank you, uh, sponsors. Thank you, all you sponsors. And this will go far deeper into the theme stories and information that I'm sharing through these Sunday sessions. Now, coming up uh, in the Sunday sessions, we have 23rd of August is uh, Poets for Heritage. So we're going to have Heritage Poetry Session from 2 o'clock, as well as the, the Bards from the Woods at 4 o'clock. So it's going to be very much a poet. So if you could submit poems about Irish heritage, do contact me about this. These can be about inside, outside, castles, stone circles, Cairns, folklore, the history of Ireland. This is what the poetry is going to be. That's the Sunday session from 2 o'clock. The um, Bards from the Woods at 4 o'clock, that's definitely still be yourself surrounded by trees. And then one that people have been looking forward to, we had to postpone it last year, 30th of August, the Sensing Herbs. Shame that we can't have you here, but this... It goes beyond identifying herbs from herb books. This is about wandering about and how you can actually sense the herbs and understand them by their taste, by the scent, by using your senses without even knowing their names, but knowing the nutrition, uh, whether they're toxic, whether they're safe, and what they're going to do for you. So what you're going to be is exactly like a dog or a cat or a fox or an animal. You're going to know the plant by your own senses. So Sensing Herbs, that's 30th of August. So uh, later this afternoon, we've got uh, the um, second uh, of our Bards from the Woods. Uh, so join us for that. Uh, because of a lack of time, because I've been catching the sun out in the garden uh, for this, this is actually going to be an encore session 
I hope you enjoy this. Some lovely stuff. Going back between 2012 and 2018, Bards in the Woods and some of those scenes, some of those poets that are going to be actually uh, sending live poems, their recent poems for future Bards from the Woods. So join me again at four o'clock uh, for this. I've still got to put that one together, but it should be okay uh, for that. So how are we doing there? Anybody, there, I see one extra comment to come up. Thank you, Resonate. I'm glad this uh, Heather uh, says this resonates with her. Thank you very much uh, for that, Heather. Thank you all again uh, for your comments and for being here and for putting up with what is really uh, a very long show. These are actually going to get shorter. I knew this one was going to be very long. So thank you for watching uh, Sunday sessions here. Uh, keep commenting here if you're watching this after it's being live and you're watching the archive. Enjoy a safe week full of wonder, inspiration, lovely, imaginative poems, and enjoy any celebration you do outside and all those lovely enchantments. So until next week, play well. Bye. Bye.